Membership organizations in civil society can be challenging to lead. Short-term member needs have to be fulfilled, at least to a certain extent, in order for membership dues to continue to be a part of a healthy financial strategy, while those same membership dues also signal legitimacy. But at the same time, membership organizations also need to be focused on the external environment and longer-term futures to guide its members towards those new futures and point out threats as well as opportunities along the way. In comes Lisa John, Secretary General of Civicus, the World Alliance on Citizen Participation, an important infrastructure organization for all of us in civil society. Lisa joined Civicus as top leader not long before the pandemic and thus experienced what it took to establish bonding and trust with team members through virtual means and how to shape Civicus culture virtually. Lisa is a master in this membership-based environment, so be sure to learn from her observations and practices. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijwijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. This is NGO Soul and Strategy, and I'm Tosca. And today I'm going to talk with a really interesting, thoughtful guest about the topic of civil society membership organizations. They are of special interest to me. Sometimes I have a membership-based client in my practice and membership organizations are complex organizational animals to lead and manage for several reasons, which I know that Lisa John the um, Secretary General of Civicus is going to really be able to shed a light on. So Lisa, let me welcome you. Thank you, Tosca. It's great to be here. I, I follow your podcast online, so it's, it's exciting to be in, in the podcast for a change instead of the listener of one. It's my honor, Lisa, to have you here. It's my honor and it's my pleasure. So Lisa is going to tell us in a moment what Civicus is. The uh, complete uh, name for Civicus is the World Alliance for Citizen Participation. And it is a very important network with an infrastructure type of role in civil society. At least that's what I think it is, but you're going to correct me if that's not the case. Years ago, when I was still in quote-unquote accidental academic and my uh, university program was a member of Civicus, I used to attend some of Civicus's world assemblies 
and some of my former students actually interned at uh, at Civicus. And later on, Lisa, um, we actually hosted, I think you noticed, know one of your predecessors, Ingrid Srinath, for a short fellowship program. So my relationships uh, to Civicus go way back. And today, Lisa, I would like to talk to you about your leadership through the lens of virtual and hybrid leader, uh, team leadership. Because Lisa, you joined Civicus as a top leader right at the beginning of the pandemic or around the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm really curious how that impacted your leadership behaviors, your experiences, your approaches to leadership and your habits. So Lisa, once again, welcome. And let me just introduce your bio. You are the Secretary General of Civicus, as I said, the World Alliance for Citizen Participation. You were also the Global Campaigns Director, before that at Save the Children International, Head of Outreach at the UN High Level Panel on the Post-2015 Agenda, and amongst others, International Campaign Director for the Global Call to Action Against Poverty. So you've had some really high-profile, stellar jobs. So Lisa, let's start by, for those few people who are listening in, who don't know Civicus. What is it? What is it, its mission? And um, what is the, the, the mandate that Civicus stands for? Great. So Civicus essentially exists uh, to serve and strengthen citizen action and civil society. So, uh, you know, in, in a nutshell, we actually, uh, you know, exist to serve uh, and, and extend support to work with people power in all its forms. And it was it, it it it's actually completing 30 years next year so that's three decades of of our work is it uh, and uh, absolutely and and i think uh, you know the the strength of civicus really is its network is its membership we have 12500 plus members in 175 countries mm. and uh, the focus really is on protecting and expanding civic freedom. So the freedom of expression, the freedom of peaceful assembly and the freedom of association. So although the members themselves and our allies and, you know, people that we engage with represent all forms of civil society from the, you know, highly organized, structured international, you know, NGOs to the extremely dispersed, um, you know, spontaneous action that individuals or groups might take, uh, you know, at the level of communities or, or you know, at subnational levels. The one thing that holds everything together is the identification of, uh, you know, those actors as a part of civil society and, and then the ability for them to interrogate how their uh, environment is actually either enabling or disabling their agency as a, a civic uh, you know, actor. And I think that's that's the connection that we make across all aspects of our work. Mm. You just told me something that I didn't know. It made me think about a really, for me, really important uh, report that you put out probably about 10 years ago. So you mentioned that your membership is not just those small or big um, formally registered what we know as nonprofits or NGOs, but also forms of spo uh, spontaneous local civic agency, if you will. And I knew that you're very focused on the latter, but I didn't know that some of your membership also consists of that. That's really interesting. And and the report that I'm referencing is is um, you wrote a report highlighting um, highlighting how weak 
the linkages or the, the significance um, the um, formally registered NGOs have in the minds of spontaneous civic agency and how weak our public legitimacy in that sense, if I talk about formally registered INGOs, in particular the kind of um, organizational actors that are important in my practice. So I'm really glad you, you mentioned. Is there anything else you want to say about that part of your membership? Because I'm quite interested in them. In fact, I think that part is now the majority of Civicus's membership. So I've been around for a little over three years. And in the last four years, Civicus's membership has increased fourfold. Wow. So the year before I joined 2018, we were at around, you know, uh, 2,500 or 3,000 members. And now it's, it's 12,000 plus. And the majority of the new members are actually the next generation civil society actors, so either people who lead their own groups or organizations or, you know, kind of networks, or people who are activists in their own right and, and are not single issue or single organization actors. So they basically are informed uh, citizens or informed leaders in their own communities who understand the intersectional nature of you know, social justice, in, and uh, when I say social justice, I'm including the environmental and economic and, you know, political and social mm-hmm. elements. And and that, I think, is the biggest power, not only for civicus, but for civil society at large today, yeah. right? That the dream we had of people really understanding the complex but interconnected nature of change is a reality for it in, in many households, in many communities and in many countries today. Yeah. So then I have to go off off script right away and ask you, Lisa, um, if that is your biggest constituency now in terms of membership, those spontaneous and local level um, forms of civic agency, um, movements, etc. Are their membership needs quite different from those of formerly registered NGOs? And how does Civicus balance that or deal with that? I think the one really immediate way in which the need is different or the engagement is different is that there's a very high level of authenticity and uh, non-hierarchical engagement that you need to bring into every space for interaction. So I think the the kind of uh, inherent uh, you know acceptance that many of us who've worked through, uh, you know, structured, formal, professional organizations where we accept leadership in a, of a functional or, or a, of a nature that's, uh, I, I can't remember now what the term is, prescribed or ascribed, you know. So, you know, so the, the acceptance of somebody as a leader simply because they hold a title is not there. Position and, of and power I think that's, is not the whole story. Exactly, exactly. And and the acceptance of organizational hierarchy. So I often attend uh, meetings where you know it's it's an interaction of CEOs or leaders of international organizations. And I, I think the first thing this, that just strikes me is that this format would not work for anybody in Civicus's networks because nobody is going to sit around and wait for their time to speak like two hours into the conversation. Uh, and and then the assumed. Uh, you know, uh, I think hierarchy in terms of just the amount of resources an organization holds and therefore their ability to understand or influence their external realities better is also completely questioned in, in such an environment. And I, I think the biggest shift that Civicus has then made in its programming in the last few years is really embracing the idea of co-creation and solidarity. Uh, and, and therefore, even 
for a board member of Civicus to go into a membership space, I think you have to leave behind a lot of your positional power, your assumptions about how power works, and you have to prove yourself in that conversation, allow people to prove themselves and engage as an equal actor. And I think for me, that's hugely refreshing, uh, especially because of you know my own background uh, as an activist from South Asia, as a person of color in international uh, you know, human rights and development yeah. organizations where there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of assumptions, right, about how power and privilege work. And, and so therefore that, you know, the fact that the ground is just leveled in conversations with new civil society actors, I, I think is extremely powerful and extremely enabling. Uh, interesting, interesting. I, I already think I, sh- I will have to, at some point in a few interview you about um, about when those two types of civil society actors interact to try to to work on a common cause, what happens then? It's it's a topic that I'm really interested in as well. But let's set that aside for another um, episode. So let's get down uh, a little bit down and dirty in terms of what's. Uh, tell us how many. Um, how many how big is civicus as an organization right and and what is your what is the nature and structure of civicus if you will so the way civicus is set up is that it's the alliance or the network in a way that um, uh, you know is is the general body so to speak so it, it drives the priorities uh, and and the alliance elects the board uh, which is the governance, uh, you know, kind of group and which which provides oversight and really owns the strategy of Civicus. Uh, and, and then the secretariat, uh, which is the organizational or the institutional part of Civicus that we're speaking of and where I belong, is designed to serve the alliance, right? So we're, mm-hmm. we're designed to kind of work quite closely with uh, the membership uh, uh, and networks itself and the board. And I think my... The fact that all of my roles in the past have been in spaces that serve a wider network have really helped the engagement with Civicus because I've, I I don't think maybe just my first job was the only one where it was a traditional organization which was driven in a you know by its own systems and structures. Every other role I've done has always been uh, you know a structure that's set up to serve a much wider constituency of actors, many of whom are not employed by the structure itself. Mm. So I think that completely changes your orientation to, uh, you know, how pro- you know priorities are determined, how communication happens, how decision making happens, and and that I find uh, you know has a lot of parallels with the way that Civicus works, and and there's been a lot of new policies and systems that we've set up to actually just reinforce that, uh, you know, component or that part of Civicus's identity, which I hope now is, is is much clearer and therefore much strongly, more strongly experienced both within the Secretariat and beyond. I see. So let me ask you a little bit to get a little bit more practical around these three things that you just mentioned before we move into the realm of virtual and hybrid leadership. Um, you said being this type of membership organization that has affected or needs to affect how priorities are set, how decision-making happens and how communication happens. In a nutshell, can you summarize what those implications are for those three arenas? I think the, the, the bottom line is really then the accountability for, you know, uh, 
where resources are prioritized, where action is taken and what impact is achieved, there needs to be in the frame of how you communicate to your the widest range of stakeholders, right? So not, I mean, even the membership is kind of more of a primary community. Uh, I think essentially our work and what we do needs to be understood by civil society wherever it exists, irrespective of whether they're a member of Civicus or not. And I think that's that's really where, uh, I mean, fortunately also the Civicus board has been quite strong in framing the the mandate and the work of Civicus as being ultimately, uh, you know, designed to improve and enhance the environment in which civil society and civic actors work rather than just, you know, responding to the immediate needs either of staff or of board members or of, uh, you know, the, the alliance members itself. Because then you kind of get lost in that, uh, you know, framework of uh, that, in fact, in one of your podcasts, Srilata Bhattiwala explained quite well about the, you know, the the in, internal structures and the cliques and, and you know, the, a lot of the internal uh, ways in which power flows rather than in terms of the actual formal mandate. Mm, mm. Talk to me, if you would, Lisa, about... Um, uh, so there is there is uh, the membership and then and there is the board. Um, talk to me, if you would, a little bit about membership needs can be very short-term oriented, right? Around what can Civicus do for me as a small organization, as an informal uh, movement, as a formally registered NGO. At the same time, you're trying to pursue long-term goals, including influencing that long-term that, that environment for freedom of association, expression, etc. Does that ever, do those two bite each other ever, where you need to look into the future and act to influence that long-term future, but your members say, no, you need to help us survive right now, or you need to help us uh, get more resources right now? Yeah. So interestingly, uh, you know, we, we spent the last two years uh, refreshing and adopting a new strategic plan for 2022 to 2027. And there were several conversations with members, but also with other kind of allied networks, which were either member driven or, or you know, more hybrid in that sense. Uh, and I think there was a very clear sense that people's experience of Civicus differs based on which part of Civicus they're engaging with. So it was very hard for most people, including to some extent staff and board members, to understand what Civicus actually does in its entirety and what the overall, you know, the overarching purpose of the alliance was. So that was the problem that we actually really prioritized and addressed in the articulation of the refreshed strategy, which was the sense that, uh, you know, irrespective of which part of the programming or the intervention or the uh, research or analysis anybody feels closest to, there shouldn't be any ambiguity of of why Civicus actually exists and what its core purpose is, and which is really to monitor developments that affect the work of civil society and civic actors, and then do what we can to actually improve or enhance that mm. in on a long-term basis. So um, one of the things we did when we realized that there was such a disparity in the understanding of uh, Civicus's work was actually initiate uh, you know, induction, monthly induction meetings for new members, for instance, so that their first interaction should really be with the overarching 
strategy of civicus itself and then they can choose you know where they want to engage uh, having said that i don't think it's a problem at all if people come uh, into the civicus network with a specific need because nobody has the bandwidth i mean nobody is coming here to adopt our strategy or kind of spend all their time trying to understand us so our job on on the other hand i mean i think it's it's more of our responsibility to figure out what you know what is most useful to a given member depending on which phase of of their organizational or individual activism journey they are and then provide the easiest route for them to engage with that um you know kind of offering or space or experience even if it's beyond civicus so if we can't meet uh, the need the, the immediate needs or the short term needs of any of uh, the members then it's our responsibility to provide referrals and find other ways in which okay uh, you know those yeah. needs can be met and, and okay so and maybe just lastly to say that one of the, you know in, in a in a previous role i had worked as head of outreach uh, for the un high level uh, panel on the post 2015 agenda and one of the things i was really committed to in that job was that i would answer every single query that ever came into the high level panel secretariat so even if it meant going home every day at 11 in the night and it gave me a lot of fulfillment to you know respond in a meaningful and and very uh, focused way to even the smallest uh, you know kind of email that came from an organization that had never written to the un before and ironically after i left that job i used to go when i traveled to different countries i would meet people who would say you were the first person from the un who ever responded to us directly <laughs> and and that really made i mean i think that in every stage of my uh, you know my work as a campaigner as a mobilizer as a networker it's it's paying attention to individual needs and giving visibility to you know people who are part of the network that matters mm. and i'm very proud to say now that in civicus i mean i get uh, my email is on the website i i get a lot of emails directly from both members and and non members and we do get a lot of queries from civil society around the world there's never an email that goes unanswered because we we i mean i think that's something we need to be very very committed to right that as a civil society alliance or a body there should be no organization or individual who feels like they've written into us uh, about something we know or we can help out with or provide more information on and they've been ignored so so i think yeah. that's you know that's kind of the bottom line in terms of engagement yeah 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 um so now i i uh, looking at the time i want to turn a little bit to um what was the impact of the fact that you joined civicus which am i right in thinking civicus how it's been managed has been a, a hybrid organization from the beginning is that right by which i mean you've always had a small relatively small set of staff uh in johannesburg south africa but a number of your colleagues have always been globally distributed is that correct it is although it's been a 50-50 split so 50-50. at least half the organization has half always the organization. been here okay okay so that's that's a good correction um but being that you when did you join civicus was that right at the beginning of the pandemic or just before the pandemic just before that jan 2019 and when there you go yeah so 
And you mentioned to me when we met once again a number of months ago, um, and you said, I've been a virtual leader of, of Civicus from the beginning. And I thought, okay, that's what we should be talking about. So I have a couple of questions ab about that uh, because I'm rather interested in the topic of virtual uh, and hybrid team leadership. So... Um, Off the cuff, just, for, just from the top of your head first, how would you say your leadership practices, actions, habits, and behaviors have been affected by the fact that this leadership experience has been entirely virtual for you so far, two years now? So I think there were two parts to it. The first year, uh, you know, Almost, I mean, everybody who needed to be in the office was in the office here in, in Johannesburg or in Geneva. We have offices in Geneva, New York as well. And then there was at least one third of the organization that was, you know, working remotely. But uh, I, I think in the first year, because we didn't have, I mean, the pandemic wasn't around and there wasn't this compulsion for everyone to work remotely. It was extremely difficult. I, I was actually living in Kenya when uh, I joined uh, Civicus as a, as a result of my previous role. And then I needed to wait till the academic year ended so that I didn't have to kind of take my daughter out of school and then just, you know, move countries uh, on uh, yeah. the drop of a hat. And then I also had to, as, as, as an Indian passport holder, go back to India, apply for a work permit to come into South Africa. It, and it, it was, it just took a really long time. So by the time I actually got here, it was the beginning of December. So it was already 11 months since I'd been appointed before I could actually move here, although I did visit, uh, you know, on and off and, and join some global convenings. But I think that just created an atmosphere of tension and uncertainty and a lot of stress for the institution because people, uh, most people had never, hadn't interacted me, with me or known me before. And, and there was the sense of, uh, you know, relying on third party Uh, narratives in terms of, uh, you know, kind of trying to assume uh, who I was and what I would do and what my priorities were. Uh, I think I was very fortunate that, uh, I mean, from that point, at that point, and even now, we have a very strong senior leadership team and where there is, you know, I mean, I think it's one of the best teams I've ever worked in, in terms of being 100% honest, authentic, And, uh, you know, really being kind of aligned in terms of saying that we, we need to do things together, even if we are completely different and might have very different perspectives on specific situations. But in terms of our value orientation and our understanding of what Civica stands for, there's a lot of, um, you know, alignment. And, mm -hmm. and I think that uh, was a very, very strong factor in being able to see through, especially that first uh, year. And then I came, uh, you know, to South Africa in, in December. I, I said I was in office across Jan, but I was also traveling quite a lot. And March 15th was when the lockdown was announced here, right? So I, I literally, I think, just had like two and a half months or three months uh, of, you know, face-to-face -face interaction with at least the, the, the colleagues who were here in, in Johannesburg or who were okay. visiting. Mm -hmm. But that itself, I think, was a game changer because... I think to have a critical mass of the organization actually then have their own experience and their own reality of who I was and, and what I represented uh, made a lot of difference. And then soon after we went in lock, um, into lockdown uh, and then, of course, everybody was virtu working virtually. Yeah, I actually set up two rounds of like 
one-on-one or small group informal interactions with every single person who worked for Civicus. And it, it was just like, you know, half an hour or 45 minutes of just having fun. I mean, I, I even thought of up three virtual games and, you know, we would have like rounds of those different games. And I think just having that informal time with, you know, every single person in the organization in pairs in the beginning. And then I did another round of that just one-on-one. Uh, I think for me, that made me understand who each person was and where they were coming from and what, you know, their experience in the organization. I mean, I mean, just who they were as 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 humans, right? And, and mm. vice versa. And I think mm. that changed a lot. And and to be frank, I, I don't think I would have done that if we were in that hybrid working environment because you tend to get overwhelmed by the people who are around you and start forming relationships by the people who are in your physical space. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that everybody was working remotely then I think just opened up more equal ways of well, that's Engagement. really interesting. What you just said is really interesting. You said, and I think the research bears that out from what I've seen is that um, you basically are saying be all of your team, the broader team being all a virtual had an equalizing uh, effect on the chances both for everybody to interact with you and vice versa. And the non-privileging that otherwise might happen subconsciously of those who were with you in the same co-located space right and we have seen this uh, in the research and now also now that um, some organizations are going back to some form of hybrid uh, including in person um, is that the people who either choose to uh, come back and are able to and there are gendered aspects to that and there are class aspects to that and there are race aspects to that etc at least here in the us um, tend to again have higher chances of having face time with people in position of power which then helps them build credibility relationship promotion abilities stretch opportunities etc so there is a it's a it's a there's a really tricky um equity aspect to this that it sounds like you try to really balance for right away I think so and I I, um, I mean because of my previous roles and, and because I'm somebody who comes from a policy influencing background I think I'm very very aware of how much informal spaces uh, kind of bear uh, upon decision making so I, I started off my work uh, you know in civil society uh, as someone who worked on municipal governance and municipal, you know, the, the, the policies for cities, right? Governance policies for cities. And it was really apparent every time we went into a meeting, you know, which was kind of hosted by the World Bank or the municipal corporation, that everything you were saying as an NGO or as an activist was limited to the formal meeting. But the mm. same people who were with you are going to be meeting for dinner after the, you know, after the formal meeting. And a lot of the decisions then are going to be taken in that space, right? And of course, we know about the old boys network and whatever else. I think a, a parallel of that operates in large organizations. And I've experienced that, you know, when I, I used to work uh, in Kenya, for instance. And I, I at that time, uh, we had this huge office with, uh, it was a regional, I, I used to sit in the regional office um, of uh, uh, Save the Children, but it became really apparent to me that after working hours, all of the socializing was according to race or economic status. Mm. And uh, because I was from the global secretariat and I, you know, I, I had kind of opted to work in the region, 
regional office, I didn't have like any kind of cohort to to hang out with because I didn't really work with anybody else in that office directly. And I was also at least at one point the only person of South Asian origin in that entire office. And I think then, you know, some of us got together and we started this whole kind of campaign for to open up cultural, you know, the 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 cultural or the the informal space for people to engage with each other beyond work. Because then if everybody who's at the leadership level is by default white or, yeah. you know, of, of a higher economic uh, kind of background, you're going to be meeting in birthday parties and dinner parties and Sunday brunches and you're going to be discussing work and you're yeah. going to be taking a lot of decisions that don't factor in anybody else's opinions. And I, I think it was just... It was just out there, like I mean, it was so apparent. And I, I, I mean, even coming into Civicus, I, 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 when I talk to other people, I kind of say that you know what, on your in your personal time, it's a good idea to interact with people who don't belong to your organization for sure, and 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 probably not in your sector as well, because uh, that's where that's where the the personal interest starts coming in. If you start hanging out with people who are, you know, who will then again, you know, you tend to gravitate towards people who are culturally or economically, uh, you know, similar to you. And that's how power groups start up. And I think the virtual element, again, of working removes that, right? Because then you can't really pick and choose and be, you know, kind of uh, subconsciously, you know, uh, leaning towards your own biases. Chumming with those who look like you and who you easily identify with. Yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know you've told me before that you're very interested in an equity-focused or uh, leading an equity-focused organization. And uh, you've you've told me before we started the recording that you were um, kind of prompted to do a lot of uh, human resource work as you entered the organization, because there were some some gaps there, and that you found that quite rewarding to 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 work on that. And I wish we had time for that, but I'm cognizant of the time, so I want to make sure that I get to one more. I'd like you to apply. So everything you said so far about your virtual team leadership, um, I, I I'd like to invite you to apply four kinds of lenses to your virtual leadership and see to what extent each of those lenses was enabled or not disabled, but was challenged by the very fact that you have largely, not solely, but largely been a virtual organizational um, leader. So the four frames I'm talking about are the four frames that um, come out of the work by Bowman and Deal, um, which I often use as one of the kind of the cornerstones for foundations for leadership uh, development and training. And basically, uh, um, the four frames is about how can how can I, as a as a civil society leader, um, apply four lenses to my leadership decisions and practices and habits and behaviors, depending on what the needs of my quote unquote followers are. Okay, so let me explain what those four are. So it's about a strategic choice of leadership behavior. So the first frame is the human resource frame. And that is the idea, not human resource in the functional way, but the idea that the organization is a family that where all of us need to belong, right? The second frame 
is the the structural organizational structural frame. This is the idea that the family, uh, sorry, that the organization is machinery. You know, this is where you see the organization as organograms with arrows and information flows, decision flows, boxes that people, JDs, job descriptions, etc. So that's the organization as machinery where people are inserted as cogs in a wheel, let's say. The third frame is the political frame. And this is the frame where the organization is also a jungle, where people are jockeying for power, for position, where people are allying internally, right, forming coalitions to access you as a top leader, to um, to um, to get access to budgets and more power and to reduce dependency. And the fourth frame is the symbolic frame, which is how are there moments where I as a leader have to really have to see the organization as a temple or a church or a mosque where people need to be given kind of a higher meaning, a sense of that their work has higher meaning and I have to use storytelling, etc. So it, this is all in a nutshell. So let, let's, let's try this out. It's a little bit of an experiment. This first frame of the family, the organization like a family, right? The human resource frame. So that's, this includes your need to uh, establish relationships, develop trust, bonding, etc. To what extent, you've talked a little bit about this already, but to what extent does the fact that you had to be uh, primarily a virtual leader impact your ability to use that lens to the organization and to make people feel like a, like like they're they are bonding with each other and with you. Yeah, I think uh, off the top of my head, I would say it would be a combination of the family and the symbolism. Symbolism. I'm not a religious yeah person, but uh, because I, I think for me the family is actually civil society as a whole. So. For in, in all organizations that I've worked in, the organizational identity and structure hasn't really mattered. It's the purpose, right? And the fact that you're actually there to exist, you exist to extend solidarity, to serve a, a larger community. You don't exist for yourself. But having said that, I, I think there has to absolutely be a complete and 100% belief that everybody is being treated fairly in in a given organization everybody has equal access to uh information the ability to contribute you know to discussions that will affect how the organization runs and how resources and uh priorities are are organized uh and then uh the ability just to feel valued on an equal basis and you know civicus did a mid- midterm review in 2019 and one of the most important recommendations i think that came out was the real need for us to invest in processes that unlock leadership, unlocks leadership at all levels. Mm. Uh, and, and there's been a long journey towards that, which has started from the more structural elements in terms of the second box, in terms of systems where people really having 100% visibility and confidence in the systems that determine recruitment, remuneration, progression, uh, and, you know, all of the, the brass tacks in a way that, you know, uh, a lot of, people tend to ignore, but are so important just in terms of the experience of the organization itself. Uh, but on the other hand, I think uh, really saying that the opportunities we need to give for leadership building, for leadership development, which doesn't have to be within Civicus alone. It's it's about people understanding why they exist in this, in civil society and where their journey in civil society needs to go. So it could go beyond Civicus as well. 
but we're actually in the process now of developing a leadership and like we of basically throwing out a, a measurement or a task-based performance appraisal system and converting that into a leadership and development framework where people then you know, uh, take responsibility for their growth, for where they want to be, and how, the, how then their role in Civicus fits into that larger story of who they are in their own lives, right? And and what uh, they want to achieve in terms of their um, longer trajectory. Yeah. And so, so I think it's, it's, a, it's across almost like a diagonal line between both, because in order to get to the symbolism and the meaning and and the purpose, there has to be a very high level of trust and the ability to be upfront and vulnerable and, you know, and, and, and believe that your peers and, and the system as a whole is going to take you seriously and respond to your own experience. Mm-hmm. And do you think, Lisa, maybe there is no- nothing here, but I just want to explore it for a moment. Do you think if I, if, I'm thinking about your individual leadership profile, your behaviors, your practices, etc. Um, so how you show up on a daily basis. Um, do you think that the fact that um, for two years now, your organization and you have been primarily acting uh, in, in virtual ways and have not had much opportunity to be co-located with each other, right? We're, um has that mattered at all in you in in you um, um, leading on the human resource frame, as you just explained, and in the symbolic ways? So I think uh, because most of my interactions are with people who are employed by Civicus, and that's true of any organization, right? You tend to interact with your peers the most. There's been a lot of opportunity to manage that. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and like we, for instance, I spoke about the strategy process and it's not just staff, but also board and members then who, you know, were able to uh, engage. And, and there was a lot of excellent and positive feedback about the process. Uh, at a later time, maybe we can speak about something that Civicus is, is quite unique to Civicus, which is a delegated authorities framework that the board uh-huh. and staff together contributed to. So it kind of expands on at least 50 areas of work, uh, what the stages for information sharing, consultation, deliberation, decision making are and and redress are across all of that. So Mm -hmm. I think that just establishing that and that probably falls into the systems and structure domain. But establishing that just made things so much easier because everybody then knew that if there's a process that is being discussed or being determined, this is the route it's going to follow and nothing is going to get decided without information. Like it's, it's not going to come as a shock or a surprise to anyone. So even for the board to acknowledge that, yes, these are some areas of the organization where we don't have the ability to make decisions, but we will contribute. And then there are some areas where, you know, the, you know, it's, it's basically uh, other aspects or other parts of the organization who get to make the decision. And then there's some areas where the senior leadership team, makes the decision and the decision making is linked to accountability. So the person who takes the decision is then accountable to ensure that that process is followed. Right. And I think making that link really clear has also been helpful. Okay. Uh, That definitely sounds like an interesting topic. So maybe we can return to that in a future episode. Well, I need to really be conscious of the time now and also respectful of your use of time. So let me ask you as a final question, Elisa, 
you've talked about a lot of complex organizational needs and dynamics and then your individual leadership through that and overlaid uh, with with uh, with your virtual and hybrid leadership um, uh, needs. Um, people might say, I want to get to know this woman's work more. Where should they go to find out more about you? I think the easiest place to reach me is LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, and uh, the website, the Civicus website, civicus.org, uh, has, uh, you know, the details of, uh, or at least you, you know who's in the organization, who's at different levels, and, and mm -hmm. you do have my email address there as well, which is lisa.john at civicus.org. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we've been quite intentional about enabling people to reach me directly because I know for a fact that we have uh, very dedicated people in Civicus and, and, and there's, there's a real intent and interest in responding to queries and, and seeing how to connect and, uh, you know, kind of offer any, any kind of insight or assistant or reference that groups may need and most of the groups in our grassroots group uh, i think that kind of just connects directly to why we exist as well right so yeah please, yeah please. and so you're basically as you said before you actually you and your colleagues um uh, aim to respond to each and every email so so listeners if you if you're listening to this and if you're not yet for instance uh, as an as an entity, whether you're informal or former a member of Civicus, you may well want to uh, to consider uh, becoming a member because it is only through the kind of collective power and action that Civicus stands for is that we as a as a, as a global body of 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 activists and change makers um, can actually make some some structural change. So thank you, Lisa, for all your insights. It was a very very thought-provoking interviews and thank you listeners if you found this podcast ep uh, episode stimulating then be sure to check out some other uh, episodes as well for instance on my website fiveoaksconsulting.org you will find another episode on virtual team leadership that is more goes more into the uh, nuts and bolts of virtual team leadership practices. That is an, an interview with Monica Masson of, of um, Oxfam and that is episode 31. Subscribe to our podcast and you will always be the first to, uh, to know uh, whether you do that uh, through the website or on YouTube. And as it happens, we just, uh, my small team and I just uh, decided to announce the dates for a third cohort for our course on virtual team leadership that will start on 25th of September and will run through the 4th of November. So if you're interested in that, look for our dedicated website at fiveoaks.teachable.com. So this is uh, Tosca. I look forward to spending time with you next time on NGO Soul and Strategy. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, 
between power and irrelevance, the future of transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website and follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.